Okay, all right, good evening everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we're going to go ahead and begin our Bible study. And we're in Matthew chapter 7. And we will be in verses 12 to 14 tonight. So not a lot of um, verses tonight, but both of these are dealing with very important issues. So I thought, well, you know, big issues, so we'll take our time and deal with them thoroughly because there is a lot of uh, misconceptions concerning both of these uh, both of these passages, verse 12 and then verses 13 and 14. So it's important for us to have a proper understanding uh, of what these things are teaching because they are addressing common uh, misconceptions or false beliefs that are persistent in the churches today. So very important that we understand and that we mitigate against those types of things. Okay, so Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to be together tonight, and Lord, for your word that you've given to us. Lord, that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Lord, it is through your precepts that we gain wisdom and understanding. Lord, we are warned so that we might uh, turn away from evil and do what is good and right in your sight. Father, help us to understand what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, that we would practice uh, this central command uh, of the Christian life. Lord, toward one another, Lord, both in our homes, in our church, Lord, as we're out uh, in society, Lord, we pray that we would uh, treat others the way that we would want to be treated. And Lord, see that this is the very essence of the Christian life and what it means to be obedient to you. Lord, as well, we pray that you would help us to understand how difficult and how narrow the way is that leads to life. And Lord, how it is that there are very few who find it. Lord, that we might uh, have fear of you, that we might live uh, a, a, a godly life in this present age, Lord, turning away from sin. So, Lord, we pray that we would not join in a multitude in doing evil, but rather that we would strive to enter by the narrow way, and that, Lord, even if there are very few uh, who are striving with us, Lord, we pray that we would be content uh, with your word and what it teaches, and that, Lord, we would not uh, take lightly these admonitions, uh, Lord, concerning how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So, Lord, may we, with sobriety and fear and trembling, Lord, come before you tonight. And, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher and our guide and that you would instruct us from your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we are in the, these verses tonight. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we'll deal with verses 12 to 14. So we'll do verse 12 first. And here uh, we're talking about love of neighbor, love of neighbor. Uh, and here the focus is on the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that's what he's talking about. Uh, but it also has implications for the first greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And sometimes the Bible will deal with one. Sometimes it'll deal with the other. Sometimes it'll deal with them together at the same time, right? So when it's focusing on one and not the other, it doesn't mean that it's lessening the obligations of the other. But rather, it's just depending on the context, the situation, the setting of what he's talking about. And in this case, he's talking about the second table of the law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
and what that means, right? What that means and how it is that we are to understand it. So let's read verse 12 and then we'll deal with it. And the greater part of this is his final statement, the final phrase there. This is the law and the prophets, right? That this commandment uh, is a summation of the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, and how that still has implications for us today because this is coming from Christ. Matthew 7, verse 12, And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Here, he's talking about loving your neighbor as yourself, right? This is the commandment that he is explaining or that he is interpreting. And here, we have a good example of Scripture interpreting Scripture, that you have one passage saying one thing, and then you have another passage that comes along and gives further clarity, further definition of what it means to do this, right? So love your neighbor as yourself, right? That is obviously a part of the Christian life. This is one of the commandments that come from God. But practically, day in and day out, how do we do that, right? How are we to evaluate our actions, our decisions, the things that we do so that we ensure that we are indeed loving our neighbor as ourselves? And here Jesus gives us uh, a guide, an interpretation for what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you do that? Well, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Right? Isn't it true that no man hates his own body, but he loves his body, he nourishes his body, he cares for his body? That there is a sense in which we have a natural love for ourselves, right? And that this natural love is not sinful, it's not evil. There is a sinful love of self where we're preoccupied with ourselves to the expense of everyone else, we should reject this sinful love or this self-love at the expense of other people. But it is true and right for us to love ourselves, right? You love your neighbor as yourself. The way that we love our neighbor is we love them in the same way that we love our own self, right? And whenever we are hungry, what do we do for ourselves? we get ourselves something to eat. When we're thirsty, we get ourselves something to drink, right? When we're tired, we go and we rest, right? We are sensitive to our body, to the needs of the body, to what it is that we need in our life. And then we meet those needs according to the will of God. And there's nothing evil or wrong about that, right? Whenever we're doing it in the proper way. And the way that we are doing that to ourselves is what we also need to be doing for our neighbor. We need to be thinking about them in those terms. And here, the simple way to know how to do this is to put yourself in their situation and then to say, if I was in this situation, how would I want others to treat me, right? What would I want them to do to me? And then what I would want done to me is what I should do to others, right? You treat others the same way that you want them to treat you. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So in dealing with the second table of the law, right? Commandments 6 through 10. If I have children one day, which I have children now, so when I'm a child and I'm thinking in the future and I have children one day, would I want my children to honor me or dishonor me? Do I want them to obey me or to disobey me? Well, any person who doesn't have children but they're thinking about wanting to have children one day, well, of course they want their children to honor them and to obey them. So then, as a child in the home, what should I do to my parents? I should honor them and obey them, right? When I'm thinking about my parents, 
okay, well, when I get old and I'm not able to take care of myself, do I want my children neglecting me? Do I want them saying, tough luck, old man, you're on your own, right? I hope it all works out for you. Or do I want my children caring for me, right? Checking in on me, visiting me, right? Being with me in my old age, comforting me during that time of my life. Well, of course I want them comforting me, being with me, caring for me. So then as my parents age, what should I do for them? Well, this is what I would want done for me. So then I should do that for them. I should care for them. I shouldn't neglect them. I should visit them. I should comfort them in their old age. Do I want someone murdering me, taking my life unjustly? No, of course not. So should I go and murder other people? No, I don't want someone doing that to me. Doesn't even a criminal understand this? Even a murderer understands this. They don't want someone killing them. So why would you go and kill someone else? Or if I'm left half dead on the side of the road and I'm unable to get myself to the hospital, would I want someone to stop and help me and take me to the hospital or call the ambulance and make sure that I'm okay? Of course I would. So if I see someone half dead on the side of the road, what should I do? Should I walk by as the priest and the Levite did in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Or should I stop and help him, assist him as the Good Samaritan did? Of course I should stop and assist. I would want them to do that for me. So that's what I should do for them. What about adultery? Do I want uh, my wife committing adultery against me? No. But what husband wants that? So why would he then go and commit adultery against her? Right? Or uh, the young man. Does he want to marry a loose woman? who's been with many, many other men? No. So then should he go and be with many women, knowing one day that he wants to get married and he doesn't want to marry someone like that? So he shouldn't do that to his future wife. She shouldn't do that to her future husband, right? We wouldn't want that done. What about stealing? Who wants somebody breaking into their house, stealing their goods, right? Do any of us want someone steal? Do even thieves get upset when someone steals from them? They do, right? They do, they're hypocrites. They don't want someone stealing from them, but then they go and steal from someone else. Isn't that a violation of what Jesus is teaching here? You don't want someone taking your stuff, so you don't go and steal from other people. What if I lose my wallet and it has a thousand dollars in it? Do I want someone taking that money and not returning it to me? No. So what if I find someone's wallet with a thousand dollars in it? Should I just keep it? No one's going to know, right? It, they, they lost it. It was left there. Finders keepers. That's what people say. Or they go to the store and the, the, well, this was back when, you remember we used to have this stuff called money and we would pay for stuff with money and they would give us change back. That was back in the old days. It doesn't happen anymore. But there was a time where you would do that and occasionally what would happen? Well, they're supposed to give you $3 back and instead they would give you uh, $13 back. They would make an error in your favor and give you back more money than what you're supposed to do. And then you discover what happened. Well, what should you do? Should you just keep it? Hey, right, that's their mistake. And, and it's my, in my favor, so I'm not gonna go back. Well, if I was the store owner, would I want someone doing that to me? Or would I want them being honest and returning it? Well, I would want them to be honest. So that's what I should do. Or what if you're an employee? If you're an employer, do you want your employees loafing on the job, not working hard, being lazy, not doing what they're supposed to do? No, you wouldn't want that if you were the boss and you were paying them to work. So then if I wouldn't want someone doing that to me, then why would I do that to my boss, right? So this is the way that he's talking here. What about lying? We all love people lying to us, don't we? No, no, we don't want people lying to us, deceiving us, right? If we go to buy a car, 
and they're not being honest and telling me that this transmission is no good and, and they uh, lie about it and then I buy a car and it doesn't work properly and I'm out all this money now because this man wasn't upfront and honest with me. Well, would I want someone doing that to me? No. So should I do it to someone else? Of course not, right? So in all of these ways, coveting, right? Coveting as well. I don't want someone lusting after my wife. I don't want someone lusting after my property, lusting after my children, right? Having this inordinate desire for things that don't belong to them. So then I shouldn't do that to other people either. You see how simple this is? So simple and yet so profound at the same time. What Jesus is teaching here. And very easy to remember, right? Very easy to remember and yet so practical. In every situation, when we're looking at what's going on in the world, when we're making decisions on how it is that we are to relate to our fellow man, this is the rule that should guide us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how do I love my neighbor as myself? I treat him the way that I would want to be treated. This is the way that you do this. And if you do this perfectly, you would be a perfect man, a perfect man. Now, of course, no one can do it perfectly, but it is a perfect rule, a perfect standard of righteousness. If we consistently, perfectly applied and lived according to this rule, what Jesus is stating, we would never sin. This is how simple and yet how profound it is. It, it, it covers everything. Every single thought, every single decision that we would make in our life is incorporated in what Jesus is saying here. Right? So this is how profound the teaching is of Christ. So this is the way that we should live. We should treat others the way that we want to be treated. And then the last phrase, for this is the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Now, in what way does he mean that? He means it in the sense that all of the law and all of the prophets, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, in one way or another, are teaching how to either love God or love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the law and the prophets are teaching. They're teaching love, love of God and love of neighbor. And we'll see, we're going to read some passages Loving neighbor and loving God are also interconnected. So you can't separate loving your neighbor from loving God. To love your neighbor is to love God. To love God is to love your neighbor. So even when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he incorporates all of the Bible, right? He incorporates the first four commandments as well. Or if he simply says, you should love God, he also is including in that, even if it's not explicitly stated, implied is to love your neighbor as yourself. Because how can you love God if you're murdering your neighbor who's created in the image of God? How can you love God if you're committing adultery with someone? You can't love God in that way, right? And how can you uh, love your neighbor if you're committing idolatry if, and you're teaching them to do so? That's not love of neighbor. So loving God and loving neighbor are always connected together. They are inseparable. And that's why they can say, love God, they can say, love your neighbor. They can say, love God and love your neighbor. They can say, treat others the way that you want to be treated or any other summary that they want to give. And this is the essence of the law and the prophets. This is the summary of all of these things. Also, the law and the prophets here, we're in the New Testament, right? These are the words of Christ, right? The words of Christ. 
So does Jesus believe the law and the prophets are no longer applicable for the Christian life? Of course not. It's insane. Insane. It is uh, insanity for someone to teach. It's, bla it's blasphemy, heresy, for someone to teach that any part of the Old Testament, and specifically the Ten Commandments of God, have no implications on the Christian life, and that Christians are not bound to obey the Ten Commandments. What's he talking about here? If this is the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. This is a summary of the Ten Commandments. To treat others the way that you want to be treated is to love your neighbor as yourself, and to love your neighbor as yourself is to keep the Ten Commandments of God. So Christ, the morality that he's teaching in the uh, Sermon on the Mount is not a different morality than what Moses taught on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, when he gave the Ten Commandments to the people, but rather it is one and the same. What Moses taught and what Christ taught are united together. They are one and the same, and the ethics of the Old Testament and the ethics of the New Testament are identical, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law and the prophets, and we could include in this the apostles as well. The law, the prophets, and the apostles are all teaching one and the same message, which is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And anyone who says that that is not the case is crazy. Okay, Matthew five seventeen. And there are many people today who do not believe in the Ten Commandments. They don't believe that we should teach the Ten Commandments. They don't believe that Christians are obligated to keep the Ten Commandments, that those were just for Israel, just in the Old Testament, and now we are under a different law. We're under the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is a superior law to the Ten Commandments. But this is contrary to what the Scriptures teach. And we'll see many examples from the New Testament where they are expecting, assuming that the Ten Commandments are still applicable and apply today in that the law of Christ is the Ten Commandments, right? Because who gave it to Moses? Christ did, right? Moses didn't invent the Ten Commandments. He received the Ten Commandments from God and specifically from Christ. Christ is the one who gave them to him. Okay, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there, Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's not setting up a new religion a new way of salvation, a new standard, contrary to the law and the prophets. That that was for one time, and now I've come to give you something new, and you don't need to pay attention to the law and the prophets because they are abolished. He says it explicitly there. He didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is where they'll say, yeah, but fulfill means that Jesus fulfilled them, and now we're set free from them, and we don't have to walk in that anymore. That's what they, that's what people will say, he means by fulfill. But what does Jesus mean by fulfill? He means keep. He means obey. 
right? Fulfilling is obeying the law and the prophets. Jesus did not come to abolish them. Jesus came to keep the law and the prophets. He believed every word written in the law of the, and the prophets, and he obeyed every commandment in the law and the prophets. And who is the standard for how we are supposed to live? Jesus Christ is. He is our standard, the life of Christ. So if Jesus believed and obeyed every word of the law and the prophets, then we should believe and obey every word of the law and the prophets. And he says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away until all is accomplished. And whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments, one of the least of these, but people annul the Ten Commandments. Those aren't the least. Those are prominent. Those are in a preeminent place. Those are the greatest of these commandments. That's what people are annulling today. Well, what will Jesus do to them? He'll abolish them. He'll annul them. Right? They won't enter into the kingdom of God. So the law and the prophets are not contrary or contradictory to Jesus and the apostles. But rather, Jesus and the apostles, the law and the prophets, are all teaching one singular consistent message. And that is the message that we must believe. And they're all teaching the same ethic or the same morality, the same way of living a godly life. And that is the life that we should live. Okay? So there's no contradiction between the two. Okay, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And we'll pick up in verse 34. Twenty-two thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So here, Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus rightly answers, to love God with all of your heart, soul, and with all your mind. This is the chief, this is the great, the foremost commandment. Right? In terms of order, right? God versus neighbor, loving God is supreme. Right? It is supreme, but that doesn't mean the second commandment is in contradiction or in opposition to the first commandment. Right. That's why he adds it, right? That's why he adds it, because that's what people want to do. They want to make the Bible contradict, and Jesus is clarifying and saying, the first and greatest commandment is to love God, but that doesn't mean the second commandment is in contradiction to the first commandment, but rather they're, uh, they're in perfect harmony together, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Isn't that the same as our passage in chapter 7, verse 12? For this is the law and the prophets, and there on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are in one way or another teaching love of God and love of neighbor in the proper, in the proper sense and in the proper way. Okay, 1 John chapter 5, or chapter 4.
1 John 4, verse 19. 4.19 We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So there, the unity of loving God and loving our neighbor. And here specifically, he's talking about brothers. This is it within the context of the church. It would extend to those outside the church, but here he's talking about within the body of Christ. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, and hating brother will be further defined as when you see your brother in need, of daily his clothing his bread whatever he needs for his body and you shut your heart up against him how can the love of god abide in you if you see your brother with a need you have the means to meet that need and yet you fail to do so but then you say i love god what is john saying about you you're a liar you don't love god because if you love god what would you do for your brother what would you do for the child of god you would help them you would assist them in their affliction because how can you love God who you cannot see and fail to love your brother who you do see right it's impossible right the one who loves God should love his brother also we should love God and we should love our brother and we should love our neighbor as ourselves so loving God and loving neighbor in many ways the way that we show our love for God day in and day out is seen in loving our neighbor, loving our neighbor, right? This is the way that we show and manifest the love that we have for God. Okay, Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 8. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So here, owe no one anything except to love one another, right? The debt we have to others is to love, right? To love our brother, to love our neighbor as ourselves, And the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, right? Has kept the law. That's what he means. Fulfill in the sense of he has kept the law. And then what does he quote? He quotes from the Ten Commandments. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 20. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Now here he's not quoting from, he doesn't quote all of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't even quote all of the second table of the law, the, the six commandments that deal with loving our neighbor. But he's just giving a summary, right? A summary or a few of them as examples to prove this point that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, And the way that we love our neighbor as ourselves is by keeping 
the commandments of God, right? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not covet. And if there is any other commandment, right? Like don't lie. Like honor your father and mother. Like remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Like have no other God before me, right? Any other commandment. It's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are summarized in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, when is this written? Is this in the Old Testament or New Testament? New Testament. Is this before or after the day of Pentecost? After the day of Pentecost. Before or after the resurrection of Christ. After the resurrection of Christ. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. And does he expect us to keep the Ten Commandments? Yes. So anytime someone says the Ten Commandments are not applicable to the Christian today, we're under a different law, what are they talking about? Do you see how insane this is? He's literally quoting from the Ten Commandments as the proof or the manifestation of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary or the fulfillment of the law. It is, notice that, it is summed up in this saying, right? These commandments are summed up or summarized in this one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? So here, the law of love is keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are explaining what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Right, that's the point that he's making here. And this is the debt of love that we owe to God and the debt of love that we owe to our neighbor. Now, in this passage in Romans 13, he's talking about our obligation to, toward our brothers or toward one another. That's why he's not quoting from the first table of the law. He doesn't mention the first four commandments. He's already dealt with that. Here, he's talking about loving your neighbor. And that's why he quotes adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting, right? But all the others would apply as well. Okay, Galatians 5. And again, all of this is New Testament, after Pentecost, holy apostles, and their expectation is that the Ten Commandments are the summary of the law and that we are still, as Christians, obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Here, you were called to freedom, brethren. Freedom. Now, the naysayers and critics will say, Free from what? We're free from the Ten Commandments, right? We're free from the law, right? We're free from the law and we live under grace. That's what they will say. But what is the freedom he's talking about here? Freedom from sin. That's what he's talking about. You've been called to freedom, brothers, and don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then how do we serve one another? Through love. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in this one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, is he expecting us to do this? To love our neighbor as ourselves? Yes, of course he is. That's why he's quoting it. 
And it's a summary of the law. So are we expected to keep what this commandment summarizes? Yes, right? If it's a summary, then we're expected to believe and keep not only this commandment, but then what it summarizes, which is the law, the Ten Commandments of God and all the other laws that are defining and explaining for us the Ten Commandments. Okay, James chapter 2. James 2. Have y'all heard these people who will say the Ten Commandments are no longer applicable today? I have. I had many confrontations with them. And it, and it doesn't go good. It doesn't go good. But they have no leg to stand on. Their legs are chopped right off. Gone. <laughs> James 2, 8 to 13. And these are the passages that they'll quote. They'll quote these passages. This one right here. The royal law of love. We're not under the Ten Commandments. We're under the royal law of love. Well, what is the royal law of love? Well, let's see. James 2, 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. I'm laughing because I'm just thinking how stupid this is. Right? <laughs> the royal law of love is love your neighbor as yourself. And notice, in your Bible, mine, it's in all bold, all caps, with quotation marks. And why is it in quotation marks? He's quoting. Where is he quoting from? The Old Testament, Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. He's quoting from the Old Testament, literally. Literally, right here. That's the royal law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Moses taught them that. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now here he says, whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point. Is the expectation to the people he's writing that they would keep this law, that they obey it, that they walk in righteousness? Of course he is. Okay, what law is he talking about? Is he talking about some new law only applicable to Christians that no one has ever known about until the time of Christ? Is he talking about the royal law of love that is contrary to the Ten Commandments? No, of course not. Notice what he says. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the law he's talking about, he, again, he's quoting from the Ten Commandments, from Exodus chapter 20. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. Right, so he's, in, and those are in quotation marks as well, all bold. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Okay, speaking of Old Testament, Leviticus 19. We'll read this one just to show that this is what they are indeed quoting from. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. So there, love your neighbor as yourself, in this context means... 
Don't take vengeance and do not bear a grudge against the sons of your people. They're not permitted to take vengeance on their own. Who does that sound like? Who else taught that we're not supposed to take vengeance on our own? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did. He literally, we did that a couple of weeks ago. He taught that. And then the apostle teaches it as well in Romans chapter 12, that vengeance is mine and I will repay. So again, it's the same standard, the same standard. It's not that in the Old Testament, they could take vengeance. But now Jesus is telling us in the New Testament, we can't do this because we have a higher ethic, a higher standard of morality. That's not the case at all. It's teaching the same thing here. And when he says, don't take vengeance, don't bear a grudge, the underlying commandment for why this is the case is love your neighbor as yourself. And then if we apply what Jesus is saying here, which is obvious, treat others the same way that you want to be treated. Well, do I want someone bearing a grudge against me? No. Do I want someone taking vengeance against me? No. So then I shouldn't do it to other people. Isn't that what it means here when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? So these are all in harmony together. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Fulfillment, not the abolishment of it, but the keeping of it, right? Love is the fulfilling or the keeping of the law, of the Ten Commandments. This is the way that we have to look at it. So there is one central message and unity between the old and the new. And the ethic or the morality, the righteousness being taught in the Old Testament is one and the same with the righteousness being taught in the New Testament, which is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary of the law. And then those two laws are further defined or explained in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments teach us how to love God, and the final six commandments teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, and those are in perfect harmony and unity with one another. And then you go throughout the rest of the Bible, and it's teaching you how you keep these things, right? How it is that you do all of these various things. And there's many examples, many further explanations of what it means to, for example, commit adultery, right? So that it's clear and there's no confusion on what it means to commit adultery or what it means to murder or what it means to commit idolatry. And all of the other commandments are explaining or interpreting the Ten Commandments, which are interpreting the two great commandments, right? This is the way that we should look at the Bible, not trying to put them against one another. Make Jesus contradict Moses. That's what people want to do today. They want Moses and Jesus to contradict or Moses and the Apostle Paul to contradict because they think in doing so, they can create a standard. They'll say it's a higher standard, but actually it's no standard at all. They say, well, we just have to love. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to love? Well, just love. They, they don't, people don't want any objective standard of what it means to live a godly life because then it's a free-for-all and they can just do whatever's right in their own eyes. And the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. The Bible gives specificity. Specificity to the commandments. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This, 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 and this. That's what people don't want. And the minute you begin to give specificity, what will they accuse you of? Legalism. You're a legalist. You're a legalist. That's not legalism. That's Christianity. It's Christianity. This is obedience to God. This is what it means to love God. 
right? That's the way that we have to teach it, and that's what we have to believe. If they call us legalist, then so be it. That's all right. Okay, verse 13. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Here, Jesus is urging us, warning us, right? He's admonishing us that the way to heaven that leads to life is a very narrow, small way. The pathway. The pathway is narrow and small that leads to life, but the pathway that leads to destruction is very wide and it is a very broad way. Meaning, it's very hard to go to heaven, and it is very easy to go to hell. That's what Jesus is teaching. Also, in relationship and in contrast to one another, are there many people who go to heaven in contrast to those who go to hell? Or is there few people who go to heaven in contrast with those who go to hell? Well, that's what he means as well. So both in terms of the percentage, there are very, very few who go to life, and those who do go to life go there with great difficulty. It is a hard, narrow way that leads to life, and there are very few people who will enter into it, very few people who are on the pathway to heaven. But it is a very easy, a broad, a wide way that leads to destruction, and there are a lot of people, many, who are going to go therein. Right? This is what Jesus is teaching concerning how few will actually enter into the kingdom of God. Now, when we read this, it should jolt us. This should cause us to fear. This should sober us up and cause us to examine ourselves, to live a circumspect life, to make sure that we're on the narrow way that leads to life. But no one believes this today. Very, very few people take seriously what Jesus is teaching here, though what he's teaching is taught all the way, it's all over the Bible. It is everywhere in the Bible, but no one believes it, right? No one believes it. Actually, they believe the opposite today, that it is a very narrow, hard way that leads to destruction. And there are few, few who are going to go to destruction. And it is a broad and an easy way, a wide way that leads to life. And many will enter into the kingdom of God. That's what most people believe. But this is not the case. This is not what Jesus teaches. And who is he talking to here? He's not talking to Muslims. Is he talking to Hindus and Buddhists? No. Is he talking to atheists? No. Is he talking to Romans who have their pantheons of gods? Who's his audience here? His disciples and Jews, Jewish people who have the word of God. So in the one area of the world where you would expect at this time to find true worshipers of God, true Christians, Jesus is telling them that there are very few who are going to enter into heaven. He doesn't mean all of you are going to make it and the rest of the world isn't, but in relation to those who are listening to him, to those who claim to be the children of God, very few are going to make it to heaven and many will go to destruction. That's who he's talking to. Isn't that his audience? He's talking to those who all would claim to be children of God. And that's why he's warning them, you better strive 
to enter by the narrow way. And wasn't that truth manifested in Jesus' ministry? There weren't many people who believed in him. There were some, but most people rejected him. And then they killed him. And we're not talking about, though the Romans did participate, but the instigators, the ones who were behind it, who wanted Jesus put to death, was the Jews. The Jews who had the Bible, who had the word of God, who claimed to follow the prophets, who claimed to be children of God. They claimed to be sons of Abraham. They were the ones who claimed these things, but not in truth or in right. They did it falsely. So why would we expect in our own day that all the Christian churches are all good churches? Everyone who says they're a Christian, right? we just need to assume the best. That's not what Jesus says. Actually, you should probably assume the opposite, right? That's not the case at all. So we need to take these things very seriously about our own life, right? And then also we need to help others as well. That's what we read last time, right? Get the speck out of your own eye. Then you can help take the log out of your brother's eye. First, we need to apply these things to ourselves, to our own life. Make sure, am I on the narrow way? Am I on the straight and narrow way that leads to life? Or am I on the broad road that leads to destruction? Am I under this delusion that it's very easy to go to heaven and I can just take a, a casual stroll right into the kingdom of God and it's going to be no difficulty at all? Or am I striving against sin? Am I striving to enter by the narrow way? Am I seeking to endure and overcome all of the obstacles and all the hardships that we have to face in the Christian life? So we have to take this very seriously, right? Because we're talking about life and death, right? Isn't that what he says? Life and destruction? So we're not talking about, you know, we're all going to make it to heaven. Some will be on the, uh, you know, upper east side and some will be on the, on the other side of the tracks in the slums of heaven. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about some will be in heaven, some will be in hell. And that's why we have to take it so seriously. Okay, Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38. chapter 13. <clears throat> I meant Luke 13 is what I meant. <laughs> Luke 13. And verse 22. Luke 13, 22. It says, And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? So here's the question at hand. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? That's the question Jesus is answering. And what does he say? Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So what's his answer? Yes, there are few. Are those who are going to be saved are just going to be a few? Jesus says, yes. That's why he says, you better strive to enter by the narrow door. Many will seek to enter and they will not be able. 
once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Notice that. What's the evidence? They're claiming that they should be able to go in because they ate and drank in his presence. He taught in their streets. But we, we know who you are, Jesus. We were in your presence. We heard you teach. We ate and drank with you. And he says, I don't know you. Where, where did you come from? And what is the evidence that they're not his children, that they're not his people? Evildoers. Right? This is the same as he says, in again, in Matthew. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you lawless people. Those are the ones saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many miracles in your name? Right? Open up to us, Lord, let us in. And he says, you are workers of evil. It's the same here. They're evildoers. They're working evil, yet they're claiming this association with Christ as the basis for why they should get into heaven. And he says, no. That's why he's telling us, you better strive to enter by the narrow door. Don't have this superficial faith, superficial Christianity. Think that just some attachment, some loose attachment to the things of God, to Christ, is enough to get you into heaven. You can't do that. You have to take it seriously. There has to be true faith, true faith in Christ, and true faith in Christ will be manifested through good deeds. That's what he means here. Their evildoers, their evil deeds prove that they don't have true faith in Christ, okay? In that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself being thrown out. Again, who is he talking to here? He's talking to the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking to those who had the prophets delivered to them. So you claim to be a son of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You claim to be a follower of the prophets, but you're going to be on the outside with weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, they're in the kingdom of God because they weren't evildoers. They lived a godly, righteous life. They had true faith in Christ and lived a godly life. But you people, you have superficial faith and you live an ungodly life. They're going to be in, you're going to be on the outside with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Who are the they that will come from north, south, east, and west? The Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God. And you, the sons of the kingdom, so-called sons of the kingdom, not true sons, you're going to be on the outside looking in with there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we got to take this serious because we're in the same situation as the audience of Jesus, the Jews of the time. We have the word of God. We claim to be children of God. We go to a Christian church. We say that we're believers. Okay, that's all good and fine, but it has to be manifested by good works by good deeds right are we producing fruit in keeping with repentance that is the evidence that we are the children of god 
And it is those who are doing that who are striving to enter by the narrow gate. And how long do we have to strive? Just a year or two? We have to strive from our conversion until our death, the entirety of our life. This is the call for endurance, for the perseverance of the saints. That's what he means by strive. He means persevere. You have to endure and persevere, right? And saying strive, that's not stroll. He doesn't say stroll, stroll into the kingdom of heaven. He says strive, right? Strolling is easy. Striving is difficult. It's hard. And we can't give up. We have to press on to the kingdom of God. That's what he's teaching here in Matthew 7. So, in relationship to the world, there is very few who will go to heaven, and there are many who will go to hell. This is what Jesus is teaching. A remnant. Only a remnant will be saved in every generation. Now again, this is not being taught in the churches. It's not believed in the churches. The exact opposite is believed, which is that everyone's going to make it to heaven. Right? Universalism is a universal plague on the church in every generation. This is what people want. They want universalism, which is lowest common denominator Christianity. Right. Right? All you got to do is believe in Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. And that's, an, that's all you got to do. And believe in Jesus is walk up here and pray this prayer and you guarantee you got a first class ticket, right? Straight to heaven. And you have nothing to worry about the rest of your life. Just leave me alone. Let me live how I want. But I'm guaranteed. Don't people believe this? Haven't we all seen this throughout our life? That you got a person who's a drug dealer, right? He blows himself up in a meth lab. This is not hypothetical. It literally happened. And yet, at his funeral, he was, he's a Christian. He gave his life to Christ. Yes, he, he, he slipped off the way a little bit here and there. He blew himself up in a meth lab. But that's all right. We know he's in a better place now. He's in a better place now. This is what people believe. Everyone believes it. Who has ever gone to a funeral where the person went to hell? No one, right? No one. It doesn't matter how they live. And then our doctrinal differences. Our doctrinal distinctions, they're just preferences. It's just preference and opinion. It's like flavors of ice cream, right? You like chocolate. I like vanilla. Some like strawberry, like Kate. It doesn't matter. You pick what you like. I get what I like. We're all on the same team. We're all going to make it, right? Golden Corral Christianity, universalism, pluralism, relativism. This is what is being taught. This is what is believed in many of the churches. So it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist, if you're a Methodist, if you're Church of Christ, if you're Free Will Baptist, if you're an Anglican, if you're a Lutheran, if you're an Episcopal, if you're a Roman Catholic, it doesn't matter. Pentecostalism, none of these things matter. You can go to Life Church. It doesn't matter. Right? All We're all going to make it to heaven. We just need to love one another, get along, uh, be kind to one another, smile a lot, and in the end, we'll all make it to heaven. We might disagree here and there, have a friendly debate, a gentleman's agreement, but at the end of the day, we'll shake hands, slap each other on the back, call each other brother, because we're all on the same team. This is what people believe. It is false. It is false, and it's contrary to what Jesus explicitly teaches here. And we have to fight against this. This is a false ideology. When he says strive to enter the kingdom of God, that's what we have to strive against. This mentality is what we have to fight against. We must overcome it. Right? Doctrines must be convictions for us. We must believe these truths 
not as preferences, not as opinions. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Bible teaches, right? And this is what the Bible teaches, not just for me, but for everyone. Everyone who is a Christian is obligated to believe these truths. So this is the issue of all issues that we have to overcome in every generation, which is relativism, pluralism, or universalism. And Matthew 7, 13 to 14 is teaching against this, but people don't believe it. And relativism teaches contrary to Matthew 7, 13 to 14. It tells us not to worry about it, don't sweat it, because we're all going to make it in the end. So we have to fight against this, and we have to see that the Bible teaches the doctrine of the remnant, right? The remnant. In every generation, there are few who are saved in contrast to many who go to hell. There are few, in, in both in contrast to believers versus the world population, and also few in contrast to believers and fake believers or fake Christians. There are few true churches in contrast to many false churches, and there are few true Christians in contrast to many false religions. Right? In both cases, it is true, and that's always been true from the beginning of time until the end of time in both regards. Okay, let's see this in a couple of places in the Bible. First, Genesis 9. This truth of a remnant being saved in every generation, even our own generation, we have to understand. Otherwise, we're, nothing's going to make sense. Genesis 6, verse 9. Did I say 9? I said 9, 6. I meant 6, 9. Sorry. 6, 9. 6, 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That in then with first Peter chapter three. First Peter three verse twenty. It says, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So in Noah's day, how many people were saved? In terms of the flood, there were eight who were saved and the rest were destroyed. And conservative estimates would be millions and millions of people on the earth at that time. Because of the time from Adam to Noah, the lives that they lived, the amount of children that they had, millions of people on the earth, and only eight of them were saved. And why did God destroy them? Right? Because of their sin. Right? They were not believers. So only eight, and of the eight, it was specifically Noah, who was a believer, that God saved his family because of Noah. And then we know at least one of Noah's sons was an unbeliever. Him. We don't know about the wife and the uh, 
sons' wives. It doesn't tell us anything about them. We know Shem for certain was a believer, and likely Japheth as well. So at least we know one, two, three that were believers, and one was not. And that of the eight who were saved from the rest of the world. So in Noah's day, was it a narrow way that led to life, or was it a broad way that led to life? It was very narrow. Very, very narrow, right? There were only eight who were saved. And even of them, not all were believers. Not all were believers. So in Noah's day, there was a remnant that was saved. Very, very few in contrast to the rest of the world. Okay, what about the wilderness generation? The ones that were brought by Moses out of Egypt. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I said this earlier, both in relation to the world population and in relation to the false church, there are few. Because here we're not talking about Israel in contrast to Egypt or Israel in contrast to the rest of the world. We're talking about the true believers in Israel in contrast to the false believers in Israel. Okay, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I think it's the heat. It scrambled my brain. and I, That's why I keep saying the wrong things. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So there, our fathers, they were all under the cloud, passed through the sea, baptized into Moses in the cloud and sea, ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, which was Christ. He doesn't mean that in a true sense. He means it in a ritual sense, right? In a symbolic sense, right? They saw Christ symbolically in the food, the bread, and in the rock. They experienced salvation symbolically in their deliverance from Egypt. But what those things symbolized they did not have true faith in. They did not believe in what those symbolized, though they experienced them all. This would be the same as someone who's baptized today, but who's not a true believer, who takes the Lord's Supper today, but is not a true believer. Aren't there many people who do that? Well, that's what they were like. And then what happened to all of them? They all perished in the wilderness because God was not pleased with them. And when he says not pleased with them, he doesn't mean it in the sense of, uh, well, they're Christians and they still made it to heaven. They just aren't going to get a lot of rewards. He means it in the sense that they're going to hell. Right. And how do we know that? Hebrews chapter 3. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews three twelve. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that falls away from the living God. So here, what are we talking about? Evil, unbelieving heart. Is that a description of a Christian? No. no. Christians don't have evil, unbelieving hearts, okay? 
That's what he's warning us against. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is that a description of a Christian? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm a Christian. I'm just hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. No, that would be a false Christian, okay? For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as when they provoked me. Now, <clears throat> who are the ones that provoked him? Oh, he's going to explain it. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with all those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So they had the gospel proclaimed to them, just as we do, but the word they heard did not benefit them because they didn't believe it. And all they experienced and saw through the ministry of Moses did not benefit them because they did not believe it. Just as all that Judas saw in the ministry of Christ did not benefit him because he didn't believe it. And again, who are we talking about here? We're not talking about the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. We're talking about Israel who had the word of God, who had Moses as their pastor, who experienced all of these things and saw them, yet with most of them, God was not pleased, and they perished in the wilderness as evidence of them perishing eternally and going to hell, right? That's what happened to them. And very few who were true believers, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Joshua, Caleb, they all came out, but the rest of them were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So only a few believers, in contrast to the many who perished in the wilderness. Over 500,000 men who were of military age, and then the women as well. They all perished in the wilderness, and only a few entered into rest. So in Moses' generation, were there many who were saved, or were there only a few? Only a few. Okay, let's do one more, and then we'll save the rest for next week. We don't want to rush this because this is so important for us to understand, so important for us to understand if we're going to think about things correctly. So, uh, Judges. Judges chapter 2. Two eleven. It says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Okay, so again, who are we talking about here? Sons of Israel. Okay, not Babylon, not Egypt, no one else. Sons of Israel. Who at this point has the word of God? Only the sons of Israel. They're the only ones who have access to the things of God. 
So if you're going to find a true believer in the world at this time, it's going to be among the sons of Israel. Yet, how are they, generally speaking, as a whole, how are they described? They did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their father in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, and they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So here, this period of time of the judges, which was several hundreds of years, what was generally true amongst the people of Israel was disobedience, unfaithfulness, idolatry. They were not serving God properly. So most of them were unbelievers at that time. There were a few believers, like the judges, and during the time of the judge, there would be a reformation of true religion, and there would be people converted during that time. But even that was very short-lived because they had a yearning to go back and worship their false gods. Now, we know that Ruth and Boaz were during this time. They were true believers. But in terms of true believers, in contrast to the false believers and the idolaters, and this among Israel, it was only a remnant. Only a remnant of people during the period of the judges. So that's then Noah's generation, Moses' generation, and now several generations during the time of the judges when this principle that Jesus is teaching, which is strive to enter by the narrow way, or that it is a hard, narrow way that leads to life, and there are few who find it, and it is a broad and easy way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go therein, it's proven in those three generations, right? In those three sections of scriptures, it's proven, and we'll see that this is the case in many other places as well. So if it's true in all these places, then what should we expect in our own generation? The same thing will be true today, even amongst the sons of Israel, even amongst those who are Christian churches, that this will be the case. So we shouldn't be surprised or shocked by those things, okay? All right or that we would be in the minority and everybody thinks we're crazy, but we're not crazy. They're the crazy ones, okay? 
Okay, so we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick back up on that topic of the remnant. Again, this is a very important doctrine for us to understand. Uh, if we're going to think correctly about the world, the church, what's going on, uh, we have to understand this, and it'll be a great comfort to us. Okay, so we'll stop there tonight.